J.C. Ryle once said that, quote, people will never set their faces decidedly towards heaven and live like pilgrims until they really feel that they are in danger of hell. I think that's true. We don't like thinking about judgment in the life, but we will this morning. It is the good gift of God that he would have us to do so. We continue on in our series of the book of Kings. We find ourselves in 2 Kings chapter 8, which is on page 314 of the Bible. If you're not used to this, what we do in our church, we just walk right through. This is the next passage uh, in the text. We've been considering Kings since way back in the fall. Big idea this morning is straightforward and simple. God is judge, and he is judge. God is judge and judge. God is judge and judge. What I'm going to do this morning, guys, is I'm just going to take us straight through the passage. And on the back side of that, I'll answer five questions, the last of which will take us straight to the person of Christ. Uh, this passage is, is a tough read in many ways. It's sort of like that scene from the movie Wide Earth, if you've ever seen it, where there's that kind of reckoning. That's what we'll read about today. So put your seatbelt on, friends. Lots of judgment, lots of blood being spilled today. We're going to see the reckoning of God on the house of Ahab and his brood. The Lord's given it to us as a gift to one. Here we go. Let me set the scene for us. The setting of the scene in this passage is critical because we have all kinds of promises that come into fulfillment. So let me set the scene, and I'm going to begin setting the scene by going way back to Deuteronomy 12 and uh, Deuteronomy 12 and 13. Hundreds of years before the events of 2 Kings 8 to 10, there we learn Moses warns the nation of Israel of the idolatry that's in the land that they're about to descend into. He tells them about the idolatry that's there, that these these gods that are that are there in the land are literally burning their sons and daughters. That's what this idolatry is like. And they're going to go in there and purge the evil from among them. But Moses told them in Deuteronomy 13.5, you need to purge that evil from among them. You need to not adopt the practices of that false god. And if any person does, any city does, any people do, they are to be put to death. Purge the evil from among you. So the Lord was establishing his people in his place for his glory in the old covenant. And he would not, he could not tolerate the sinfulness of those people because it would lie to the world about the truth and the goodness of God, the God of Israel. So we know the Israelites, of course, they do move into the land. And as we've been seeing through the book of Kings, they do adopt the uh, idolatry that is around them. They do worship the gods that are around them. Uh, we saw after the nation broke up, the Jeroboam, the first king in the northern tribes, he begins to adopt false worship and he makes Israel to sin. Eventually another king comes along in that northern tribe. King Ahab follows a similar path of idolatry when he marries and endorses the idolatrous worship of Baal when he marries the woman Jezebel. And just a snapshot of Jezebel, what she's like, this story will come back in our story today. Jezebel uh, Will was such an idolatrous and wicked woman that she engineers a murder over this guy named Naboth so that her husband can have a vegetable garden. That's what she's like. And the Lord prophesied in 1 Kings 21, 22-24. That passage important. 1 Kings 21, 22-24. The Lord prophesied that anyone belonging to the house of Ahab would be cut down for their idolatry. He prophesied there that judgment was going to come. 
Jezebel specifically would be cut down in Jezreel, where the dogs would lick her blood. That was a promise in 1 Kings 21. And then also earlier than that, 1 Kings 19, verse 16 and 17, the Lord prophesied that there would be this king that would come in by the name of Jehu, the son of Nimshi. He would be anointed king of Israel, and he would be an instrument of God's justice. All of that, guys, that I just described is fulfilled in our past. Everybody, with great detail. Proving yet again that the Lord is king, he rules by his word, it is true, and it comes true. But we'll see. God is judge and is judge. Here we go. 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 16. That's where we left off last week. We finally get a little bit of insight into what's going on in the southern tribe of Judah. We haven't heard much from them since chapter 3. And we learn there that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, his son Jehoram becomes king. And we sadly learn in verse 18 that he, Jehoram, is the king of Judah. He walks in the ways of the kings of Israel. We see that Jehoram marries into the house of Ahab by marrying Ahab's daughter. Significant event there. And this he does is evil in the sight of the Lord. So now we have an evil king, not only in Israel, but also in Judah. But nevertheless, look at the Lord's mercy in verse 19. Even though we have this wicked king in Judah ruling, verse 19, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. For the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So guys, as we walk through this judgment, don't lose sight of that verse 19. God showing infinite mercy to a people that do not deserve it, obviously. So Kings, we've been saying all along, is tracing the promise of God to David to have a king that would rule over his people forever. Now, kings is tracing this lamp that was going to come and we know that that will finally be realized in the person of Christ. Christ will be the answer. He will be the one that will fulfill what Kings is looking for. But until then, Israel would have to wait. But nevertheless, the Lord is merciful to Judah. That brings us to verse 20 to 24. We learn about the neighboring king of Edom. That's going to be kind of the south uh, east of Judah. We learn that they are kind of locked off from Judah's influence. This seems to be a prelude to the Lord's giving his people over to the influence of others. In fact, if you look at the back end of our passage today, 2 Kings 10.32, we read, The Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. So in the battle against Edom, uh, the, we find that Jehoram, that king in um, uh, Judah, we learn that he dies. And then after him comes King Ahaziah to rule in Jerusalem. And we learn in verse 27, King Ahaziah, the king of Judah, he's also a wicked man. And we see his wickedness in verses 28 to 29 in the ways that he begins buddying up to the other wicked king in Israel, King Joram. So these two are now beginning to kind of hang out together. And this, guys, is the launching point of the judgment. Chapter 8 seems to be leading us to understand that the tribe of Judah and the tribes of Israel are now starting to be united again. But instead of being united under the lordship of God and his command, instead they're being united in the idolatry of Israel. And that is the trigger to the judgment. 
chapter 9, we read Elisha. This is going to be one of the last times we read about Elisha. Chapter 9, we read of Elisha calling one of the sons of his prophets. Think like a seminary student. He's the professor, he sends one of his students, all right? He sends him over to go anoint Jehu as king. So we're going to pick up in chapter 9, verse 4 to 10. This passage, guys, this passage is the kind of form that the rest of the narrative will fill up. It's the framework. Verses 4 to 10 is kind of the framework for everything else, both good and bad. So take a listen. Again, the servant is going to anoint Jacob. Here we go, verse 4. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, that's the prophet Elisha, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. He rose and went into the house, and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king of the people of the Lord over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond, or free in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebo, and, that, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. And he opened the door and Two important things to notice in that passage. First, notice this is an anointing from the Lord as a king of Israel. An anointed king of Israel, anointed by the Lord. Second thing to notice is what he's appointed by God to do. In other words, what's his job description? You see it there again in verse 7. Strike down the house of Ahab so that I, notice the, how the Lord sees his ministry through Jehovah, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants and prophets in the blood of all the church. So, anointed king of Israel, job description, take down the house of Ahab because of their idolatry and because of their killing of God's people. And this is to be seen as God's doing. The Lord will avenge their death. His justice will be poured out. As we read in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's what's happening here. The second part of that verse. The Lord is bringing about this Jehu is a tool in the hands of God's justice. Work is clear. Here comes the wrath. With King Ahaziah and King Joram together, Joram got wounded. They're kind of hanging out together, the two of them. The king of Judah and the king of Israel hanging out together. Uh, they're hanging out. A company of soldiers of Jehu, they they go over to where Ahaziah and Joram are. I found this interesting, by the way. Y'all remember last week how they sent a whole army to take down one prophet. The Lord's now going to take down just a small company to take in a whole army of these two dudes. But nevertheless, in verse 17 to 20, Jehu rolls up to where, Je, uh, where Ahaziah and Joram are. And they look outside. They see Jehu outside in 17 to 20. And they send a messenger out to see if Jehu comes in peace. Neither one of them returns. Joram and Ahaziah now knows Jehu's here because he means business. That leads us to verse 21. Joram said, make ready. And they made ready his chariot. 
Then Joram king of Israel and Ahaziah king of Judah set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu, and meet him at the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be, so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so near? That last statement, friends, is, is Jehu preparing him for the reason for the impending judgment. Joram is of the house of Ahab. He participates in Ahab's idolatry. And so Jehab is saying, how can there be peace when there is so much wickedness in this nation? But I also I want you guys to notice, did you notice where this judgment was occurring? It's happening in the very same place where Jezebel and the house of Ahab committed the injustice against Naboth by murdering him in the garden. That's where this is happening. In other words, this would be sort of like drawing John Wilkes Booth into Ford's Theater to bring about a judgment. Or drawing in Japan into Pearl Army to bring about a judgment. That's basically what's happening. The Lord makes the scene of injustice the place of judgment. Joram and Ahaziah then begin to fight against Jehu. And in verse 24, we read that Jehu draws his bow and kills Joram. Justice is served. And then we read about what to do with his body in verse 26. Jehu says, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. In accordance with the word of the Lord. Thrown down on the place that Jezebel and Ahab by extension did this injustice. So friend, from this we are to see, once again, God is king, God is judge, he rules by his word, his word is true and it comes true. After this, though, Ahaziah, he tries to get away. He's wounded. He eventually makes his way to Megiddo. Chronicles would teach us that he is, apparently dies from disease that he contracts. We'll on him in a minute. But after this, Jehu then makes his way over to Jezebel's house. Again, Jezebel is perhaps the most wicked woman in all the Old Testament. She hates God. She's committed tremendous evil against God's people, specifically going after God's people and his, per, his prophets and literally killing them. So we would expect this judgment on her to be severe, and it is. Jezebel puts on some makeup, fixes her hair. She knows her time is coming. She sees Jehu out the window, calling him a murderer in line with Zimri. If you remember way back, Zimri was a guy that rebelled against the king. So she is strident in the face of this coming judgment. She is obstinate in the face of judgment. And in verse 32, Jehu says to all who were present with Jezebel, Who's on my side? A couple three eunuchs are around her. Verse 33, he said to them, Throw her down. So they threw her down. Some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled her. And we read that because of the trampling, not much remains of Jezebel's body, fulfilling the word. Verse 36. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezebel. So that no one can say this is Jezebel. God is judge. He executes his judgment in accordance with his word. 
His word is true and it comes true. The reckoning continues into chapter 10. We learn in verse 1 of chapter 10, Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. Now remember guys, remember what Jehu's job description was. It was to bring judgment, the judgment of God upon the house of Ahab. So Jehab is continuing the work he was anointed to do by the Lord. He, he sends letters to all the leaders in the places where Ahab's sons were. And he basically tells them the same thing he told those eunuchs around Jezebel. Are you with me? If you are, verse 6, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow. At this I don't know if we're meant to take that literally, but apparently the elders of those towns do take it literally because we read in verse 7, and as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, seven persons, persons and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him in Jezreel. Jehu then puts them at the gate in Jezreel. That's kind of a city center. This was meant to be a kind of warning against following the ways of Ahab and Jezreel. Verse 10, we get the synopsis. Know then, he says, that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. Again, friends, God is judge. He rules by his word. His word is true and it comes. But look at verse 11. Notice the transition there. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men and his close friends and his priests, until he left none remaining. Right, go back to that job description in chapter 9. What was his work? Was that part of his work? Was this, what we just read in verse 11, was that part of his job description, part of his anointing? I would argue it doesn't seem to be. He was told specifically to strike down the house of Ahab so that the Lord might avenge the sins of Jezebel. There's no mention of the ancillary parties. And here we find Jehu going beyond that job description in killing not just Ahab's house, but anyone that is tangentially connected to Ahab's house be it King Ahaziah earlier, or as we read here, his buddies, his pals, his close friends, and priests. There's two ways of understanding this. Two options that I think are both faithful. You guys get to choose for yourself. Two schools of thought to understand Jehu's judgment at this point. Verse 11, on the one hand, there are those who say that Jehu's actions in killing Ahaziah and look down at verse 12 to 14. You'll see there, he then goes on to kill Ahaziah's relatives. And look at verse 18 to 26. He then kind of, in cunning, draws out all the worshippers of Baal, gets them in a building, and kills them all. So this position would say that what Jehu did did not go too far. Since Ahaziah married into the family of Ahab, therefore he's part of the house of Ahab, therefore this is part of his judgment. And then, of course, also Baal and this false worship is worthy of that judgment. So this camp would say, this position would say, Jehu doesn't go too far. Then on the other hand, there's another option that says that Jehu does go this far, or does go too far. I would put myself in this camp. And I do so for three reasons. One, this is why I would argue that Jehu does go too far. 
One, the job description of Jehu's anointing was for the house of Ahab, specifically Je Jezebel and Ahab's son. It didn't include in that job description Ahab's close friends or Ahaziah and his family or the priests and the worshippers of Baal, though Baal worship deserved judgment. Second reason, though, first is that it didn't quite fit the job description. Second reason, go ahead and look at the very end. Flip over to chapter 10, verses 28 to 31. There we get a very thorough explanation of what Jehu is like as a guy. And 22 Kings 10, 28 to 31. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebo, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his art. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Now we'll come back to the commendation there in just a minute, but evidently the author is trying to make clear to us that Jehu was not a righteous man. He was like Jeroboam, making Israel to sin. He was not walking in the law of the Lord. Therefore, it is clear from the text that the author wants us to see the unrighteousness of Jehu. Building our confidence that at some point Jehu goes too far. <coughs> Third reason why I think Jehu goes too far is in what comes later in Hosea 1.4. Years after these events, Hosea, reflecting upon these events that we're reading about here, we learn of a judgment in the midst of the fourth and final son of Jehu that is ruling. Remember in the passage it says that he would have four, four sons. And in that fourth son, we learn of this judgment. And look at how it's described in Hosea 1.4. And the Lord said to him, that's Hosea, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Jehu. And so clearly what we have happening back in 2 Kings is we clearly have a commendation of the Lord for the ways in which he colored in the lines of justice. But it seems as though, I would argue, that we also get this condemnation of the Lord on Jehu, where he colored outside the line. Commendation for the ways in which he was just, did what God told him to do. Condemnation outside of what he did, because of the ways in which he went beyond that. But in either case, friends, whichever position you hold, whatever case that is, what is undeniable is that Jehu executed the judgments on the house of Ahab, as it was prophesied in great detail. Proving yet again the Lord is king, that his word is true and it comes true. Proving that he, not the kings of the earth, are in charge. And his purposes in his word are being accomplished, no matter what it looks like in the world. Remember that for today. Proving that we all, proving that he will not share his glory with another. He will judge because he is judged. Five questions. Maybe you'll have maybe you have eighty-two questions. <laughs> I'm going to answer five. First question. In light of what we have understood, why does the Lord care so much about idolatry? In other words, why can't the Lord just let it go? 
Let them do whatever they want to do. Why does the Lord have to be so religious? The first answer, friends, to that question is because God is holy. That's who God is. That's his essence. To be holy means to be set apart and pure. Set apart from creation. That is, he's infinite. He's transcendent. He is not created and pure. There's no moral filth within him. He is perfect morality. Therefore, for him to not judge would be for him to compromise that holiness, to deny who he is, to deny his essence, to deny his goodness. And so, friends, you may not like it, but at least God is honest and consistent to his own ten commands, that he will not have any other gods before him, proving that God is not an idolater. So that's the first reason why we, he won't let idolatry just be swept under the rug, that he's holy, and to compromise on the holiness would be to compromise on who he is as God which would most certainly not serve the good of man. Second reason, though, why God cares about idolatry like this is because idolatry is false. It's false, and since it's false, it isn't true, and yet it poses as the truth. Therefore, this deception, this falsehood, brings destruction. Jezebel is the perfect embodiment of idolatry and what it does, and falseness. She again seeks to steal glory from the Lord by having temples built to false gods. In other words, seeking to remove us from the worship we were made, we were designed to have. Secondly, she also, anybody, we find that anytime somebody gets in her way, she just has them killed. And oh, by the way, this idolatry that uh, Jehu is judging is described once again in 2 Kings 17, 17 as leading people to kill their sons and daughters. That's the idolatry that they're purging. This is terrible, these people. Baalism, Jezebel, Ahab, this is terrible stuff. And so at some level, friends, all false doctrine is like this. It may not kill people, of course, but at some level, all idolatry lies about light and truth. And therefore, it doesn't build. But instead, it destroys and brings darkness and death. Be that literal death or emotional death. Therefore, God must punish false religion. He is going to be good, right, and true. To preserve the truth, to preserve the light, and where life and light can be found. To manifest his glory, he must put that down. So for God to punish idolatry is for him to keep the first command and preserve light and life in the world. Gone wrong. Second. Well, Nathan, in what ways are Jehu's actions just? Right. In what ways is Jehu to be commended? Like, how is he to be commended as we learn? Well, the answer to that, friends, is that the wages of sin is death. The straightforward teaching from Scripture. The price from rebel the price for rebelling against God is to be cut off from light and life. Right? You pluck off an apple from the tree, you pluck it off from its light and light, what happens to the apple? It dies. Payment of sin is death. Your sin cuts you off from God, it brings death. And so we can we can we can talk about how Jay who brought about the death. Not many options back in those days. But what is unequivocally true is that sin's payment is death. Which is why, which is why, by the way, that Jesus had to die for sin and overcome it in the resurrection. 
Friends, I realize that we live in a place and a time where everyone assumes that they deserve 75 to 80 years. But I ask a simple question. Why do we feel so entitled to having 75 or 80 years on the earth? Why? Why? Why do we feel entitled to that? Why do we think that we deserve a certain amount of years, especially when so many of us in the world could care less about Christ, including some that take his name? Jehu's reckoning most certainly is jarring, but friends, it's supposed to be. Meant to awake our moral conscience to the consequences of our sins. That we would throw ourselves on the mercies of God. Mercy that he's willing to offer. Sin's increase demands death's increase. Yet there is more grace in God than there is sin in death. Third question. All right, Nathan, you're saying that God has to punish this idolatry because he's holy, it's good. And you're saying, secondly, that what Jehu did was righteous. So third question, can just anybody do this? Can I or someone else, you know, go and, you know, kind of be the tool of God's justice today, right? Sometimes we hear that in the news, right? Somebody kills somebody and they say, God told me to do it. So can we do that now? Is that, is this permissible? The answer to that is clearly no, for two reasons. The first of which is we are directly told not to do it. We are commanded not to avenge God on our behalf. Once again, I read you the first half of Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourself. I will repay, says the Lord. If someone cuts, so therefore, in light of that, in light of that command, friends, if someone cuts you off the road, you would be wrong to go and try to get them back. That's wrong, right? You should not do that. If your spouse does something wrong, you would be wrong to go and try to pay him back in like manner. That would be wrong. If your boss fires you because you're Christian convictions, you would be wrong to go in the office and punch them. That's wrong. I've commanded that we not do that. First Peter instructs us as well as Romans here. First Peter 2.22, speaking of Christ, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justice. Friends, if Christ could not personally employ justice himself, how much more must we not do that? And by the way, that passage in First Peter 2 is, Directly talking about things when people do things terribly. But somebody might say, well, they did the, but that seems like exactly what happened with Jehu. Now I could see that, but Jehu, friend, was given direct revelation from God in order to be used as an instrument of his divine judgment. You say, well then, okay, Nathan, but why couldn't that happen today? Well, because the old covenant is abolished and we now are in the new. Okay. It's 11.38, I've been preaching for 30 minutes, and I'm about to jump into the deep end even more. So stay with me, this is an important argument. This is how we put the Bible together. This is the second reason why this couldn't happen today. The Lord promises in numerous places, in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37, and other places that God would bring about a new covenant in light of the old covenant failure in Israel. 
And Christ, friends, is the author and the perfecter of that new covenant. Remember, what we've been saying the whole time, the Old Testament is aware of the failure and it's pointing us forward to the answer, right? Kings is preparing us for the answer of Christ. And when Christ came, he said, he, he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to usher in the new covenant, to fulfill the failure, to fulfill the, the callings of the old covenant, and to usher in a new covenant. So in the old covenant, in the times of kings, Israel was a theocratic nation state, right? In other words, church and state were combined with direct revelation from God who literally lived in their midst. That was the nature of the old covenant. That is not the nature of the new covenant. And the coming of Christ, he, Jesus, fulfills the law, and upon his death we see very specifically the veil in the temple is torn. So now it's not just priests that can go in, now anybody, including the nations, can go in. And also, not only that, we learn later that the temple itself is destroyed. God no longer works through a theocratic nation-state in Israel. <clears throat> in the ascension, Christ now rules. His session, his rule, is in heaven. It is no longer in Israel, now over the entire world. And he sent the Spirit to live not in temples made by man, like it was in the Old Covenant, but he sent his Spirit to take up residence in the hearts of men and women that believe. In the New Covenant, God has birthed a spiritual kingdom amongst all nations through the church. The church, this church, local churches, are like embassies of the kingdom. And so now his authoritative voice is no longer needed like it was with Jacob to preserve his witness in the state of Israel. He has now given the sword of justice to the state. We learn that very straightforward teaching in Romans 13. Christians have always believed this. The state now has the sword of justice. And meanwhile, God works through the church to exercise his spiritual authority through the ministry of the word. Gospel-loving local churches are given the keys of the kingdom to administer spiritual judgments on earth as we understand it to be in heaven. That's Matthew 16. Quick reminder of membership meeting tonight. So the new, in the new covenant, right, state has the sword of justice and the church has the keys of the kingdom to render spiritual justice. In the new covenant, the Lord works through the church to preserve and advance and clarify his glory. Not, the church is not rendering more mortal judgments as Jehu did. We're specifically commanded not to do that. But spiritual judgments as it has been given through the Holy Spirit to see the truth. Which is why, by the way, guys, the Bible straightforwardly and at numerous times in the New Testament teaches restorative church discipline. Gospel-believing local churches are to render spiritual judgments so as to make clear on earth, as we understand it to be in heaven, in advance of a person's death or Jesus' return to bring about judgment. In church membership, the gospel believers affirm, not create salvation, they affirm a brother or sister's salvation through baptism into the church. But when a per person taking the name of Christ unrepentantly acts like Jezebel, then they are to be judged. That's 1 Corinthians 5. Go read that. You can read that in Matthew 18. You can read it in 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 in particular calls the church to judge in that way. And when they're judged, what is happening there is, is that person is judged, the person is judged, it's living in unrepentant sin, taking the name of Christ. 
What they're to do is they're to render that spiritual judgment so as to make clear to that person, so as to make clear to the church, and to make clear to the world what the gospel is and what gospel people do. And they do that by setting them out, not by rendering any mortal judgment, spiritual judgment. They put them outside the membership of the church. They would say that there's not a place for them at the Lord's table. Because we don't understand for you to have a place, as best we can tell, at the Lord's table in heaven. And so that's the exercising of the keys of the kingdom that Jesus teaches in Matthew 16. They let the people know on earth who, as best they understand it to be, as it is written in heaven. And therefore, since we are commanded not to avenge, we are to leave it to the Lord. The Lord will do that in his judgment. And it is ours to prepare us, the church's job to prepare us for that. Fourth question. Why did God use a man like David? Doesn't seem like all of the great dudes. Some things seem good about him, but other things not so much. Why did God use a a man so full of zeal, but half-hearted zeal, an unrighteous man. The simple answer to that, friends, is that every vessel God uses, other than Christ himself, is a cookie. Everyone. Some are more crooked than others, but all are crooked sticks. God in his infinite majesty, we see his power and his glory, that he can use crooked sticks to draw a straight line. Just stop and think about it. Some people are jargons when you start going back and reading through the Old Testament. Most of these guys are nuts and very simple. Right? Maybe Joseph and maybe, you know, Josiah, but other than those two dudes, maybe one or two others, most of them are a mess. Right? Abraham included. Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. Later, God will use the nation of Assyria and the nation of Babylon, even. Not to mention the wickedness in the New Testament of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and Pilate. God is using all of these. Again, some more crooked than others, but all of them are crooked sticks that God uses to draw straight lines. Even local churches today, like ours, what do we always say? A collection of deeply flawed, yet gloriously saved people. Even still today, in the Word, by the Spirit, we are counted righteous in Christ. But we're still learning to grow up in that righteousness, aren't we? We don't always get it right. In many ways, we are still crooked sticks ourselves. But the Lord uses we crooked and maybe wavy and somewhere other than others. Draw his straight line. And so God shows his authority that he can use anything, including Satan himself at times, to accomplish his good and gracious. Every vessel. Save Christ himself. And this is the most important level. You're tuned out. I'm back in right now. Here's the question. How is Jehu and his ministry like Christ and not like Christ? How is Jehu and his ministry like Christ and not like Christ? I believe that's part of the intention of the author. Right? I do believe the author is driving us to answer this question, since all scripture points to Christ. How did Jesus read the Bible? He understood Jesus, understood the Bible is about him. Right? He quotes in John 5, 46, Moses wrote of me, Jesus says. All scriptures, John 5, 39, are about me. Luke 24, he walks in through all the law, the prophets, and the songs about me. So somehow this is pointing to the ministry of Christ. 
Every Old Testament sermon prep, if they don't get to Jesus, they'll come back to that church or get the pastor fired, including me. <laughs> how is it like Christ and how is it not like Christ? Well, first, I think most importantly, the ministry is like Christ in that Jesus, or ju- just as Jehu is, is a God-ordained king of Israel that executes judgment on unrepentant idolatry. How is it like Christ? A God-ordained king who administers judgment upon unrepentant dollars. Now, for some of you, that may surprise you. Right? We, we've been led to believe that the God of the Old Testament is kind of this quick-tempered, judgmental God, and the New Testament is kind of the gracious, kind of forgiving, kind of sweet kind of God. But friends, people who say that have clearly not spent much time in the Bible. Since, as we've seen, right, time and again, the Old Testament is full of long stretches of God's faithful and tender love and mercy. My goodness, just think about how long it's taken for God to bring about judgment to Israel now, about how awful they've been for hundreds of years. And only now is he starting to bring that judgment. But also, not only have we not only have we seen that God is incredibly kind and gracious in the Old Testament, I think many people don't recognize the fact that God is incredibly judgmental in the New Testament. Because when we read the New Testament, friends, we find a Jesus that is not only lamb-like, Lion. No one talks about the reality and the brutality of hell more than Jesus himself. All the more, it is Christ himself that understands himself as the judge of all of us. That's from the lips of Jesus himself. Take a look at John 5, 22 and 23. He says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whosoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So in other words, what Jesus just said there is all judgment is his. He's the judge, and he, as the judge, should be honored. And how does Jesus then understand him as the judge, what that judgment is going to be like? How does he understand it himself? Well, look back, I could give you numerous places. Matthew 25 would be a place to go more longer, but I'll give you one verse, John 3, 36. Jesus says, speaking to Nicodemus, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But if you're not a Christian, that's true for you. The wrath of God remains. That's Jesus' words. That's not mine. That's not just my interpretation. That's a straightforward reading. Jesus understands he's the judge, and those that are not in him have wrath of God on them that remain. So then we ask, okay, can you explain that wrath a little more? Yeah, I'll, I'll just tell again, I can take you to numerous places. I'll take you to one that describes Jesus as the judge bringing the wrath of God on the earth to judge. In similar manners, though not exactly the same as David. Revelation 6, 12 to 17 describes what the judgment of Christ will be like. Revelation 6, 12 to 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being scrolled up. Every mountain uh, and every mountain and every island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. 
calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For great, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stay? They whose judgment on the house of Ahab, friends, is a preview of the coming judgment of Christ on those who do not honor him as Christ, King, Lord, and Judge. And it is so terrible, as we read here, those apart from him want caves and mountains to fall upon. They whose judgment is a teaser of the coming judgment of Christ himself on all unrepentant. And again, that's from the mouth of Jesus. But, G, but Jehu's ministry is unlike, that's how it is like, but it is unlike Jehu's, Jesus' ministry is unlike Jehu's, in that Jesus' judgment will not go against people. It will be righteous, it will be complete, it will be holy, it will be good, it will be just fully deserving. Because Jesus himself is righteous, therefore his judgment will completely be just. It will be mixed with error or unrighteousness like Jehu's was. So the call then is for all those who are like Jezebel. The call this morning. For those of you that are not in Christ, repent to turn from idolatry. That is, to turn away from loving anything more than you love the greatness of God. And turn to Christ in faith in order to escape that judgment. Jehu was an appointed king that brought judgment upon one house. And he points us to the ministry of Christ, the true and forever king in the line of David that brings an eternal judgment upon all houses of idolatry in all the world. So friend, it is a kind and a gracious gift this morning that you have been brought here. We believe it no coincidence friend, that you're here this morning. The call from God to you is to turn from loving lies to loving the truth of God, up in front of your death or his death. You're wondering what it would look like to repent and what you have when you come to Jesus. But listen to my final point as I apply this passage. Church family, fellow Christian, to you who are repenting in Christ and believing in Christ, trusting, Treasuring honor, honoring Christ as Lord and King. Listen, you do not have to fear the God. Because you, you have already been. See, up until now, I've said that God is judge and judge. And up until this point, I've not explained that second part. God is judge. I want to be clear. God in Christ never did anything wrong to be judged for. He was innocent. However, Jesus took the fires of Jehu's judgment on behalf of all those who It is our conviction as Christians, you're non-Christian wondering, how do you Christians see yourself in this story? Well, well, Christians, we as Christians, we identify ourselves with Jezebel in this story. That's where we are. More than any other character, Nathan Knight, I, Christians, we have all poured ourselves out to other gods. 
We have all worshipped at the feet of money, sex, power, people. So often we have hoard ourselves against the gods of ourselves. We have committed spiritual adultery. We too have murdered God's prophets in the sense that we used to hate God's word, that we used to put down and hate people that spoke it to us. We too have stolen from others, be it literal or figured. As Jezebel was an enemy of God, so were we. That's our location in the story. We deserve to be thrown from the top of Mount Everest and have our bodies be and blood be licked up in judgment. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespass. Even while we were Ahab and Jezebel and Joram. While, while, while we were enemies of God. Christ died for you. He stood in the gap. He was shot in the back. He was thrown from the window and his body was trampled. His head was beat. His body was scourged. Such that it was even disfigured. He took the nails to his hands and his feet. He was forsaken by the Father on the cross. He was judged so that we wouldn't have to be. Paul says this so clearly in Romans 5. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we, that is those that are in Christ, since therefore we have now, now been justified, how? By his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. This is why we hope in heaven. Because when justice comes, so does our full and final salvation. We don't fear his judgment. But instead, on that day, every single injustice even done to us will be repaid. You think about it, friend. That was a personal affront to Naboth. He was murdered for something he did nothing wrong. So in the same way, people that sin against you, it will be dealt with on that day. All those personal injustice committed against even us, they will be dealt with. And so as we are surrounded with so many injustices, and we are surrounded with so many whorings and sorceries, as it were, we say with our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, I'm Lord. I'm sick. We say to Jesus, we do not dread your coming, Jesus. We welcome it, but only because of your love for us at the cross. So, beloved, rest today. Rest in the cross of Christ, where God's justice has been satisfied. Rest in the knowledge of the coming judgment. God is judged, and he has judged. He has been judged on your behalf in Christ. Jesus Christ, friend, is the lamb-like lion and the lion-like lamb. And he, beloved, is your defender. 
your king, your judge. His justice is and will be complete. And so sleep well tonight, beloved, knowing he's awake. But he tells us that he's telling us. May we pray, even in this moment, that it would be. We thank you that you are the judge and that we are not. You're holy. Your judgment is right. We thank you, God, as we see the throngs of injustices on our news feeds every day. But a day will come. You will make it. But until then, God, we pray for the state governments all over the world that they would do their job. We pray that churches would in the ministry, gospel ministry, would render spiritual judgment as we anticipate, as we wait coming judgment. He will make all things. He will separate the wheat from the goats from the land. But until then, God, we rejoice that Christ was judged on our behalf. You made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we sinners might become the righteousness of God in Pray for those that are not trusting in Christ today. Or that these warning passages would warn them to flee to Jesus. That they talk to somebody. The rest of us. May we as a church, may we do our job. Exercise the key. God, may we be. While we deserve every bit of judgment. You have stood in the gap for us. That justice, all eternity. We do it for just a snap for ninety minutes Sunday morning. You're worthy of it. We love you. We thank you that while these passages are hard, they are awakened. Just 